Hey guys, and welcome to episode 2.5 of our Gene Panel podcast. So in our previous episode, we dwelled into the nature of CRISPR and how bacteria protect themselves from, from phages, but we never really talked about how phages can protect themselves because, uh, well, phages still exist and it's not like they're extinct. So, yeah. Right. So we actually wanted to delve deeper into this topic and what better way to talk to someone who's actually in the field. Um, so here with us is Dr. Uh, Alan Davidson, who is a joint professor at U of T, part of the Department of Biochemistry. Uh, thanks for being here. And, um, and yeah, so we wanted to talk to you a bit about, so we know that you're studying phages, but what got you into phages? Because I know there was a whole thing about phages got cool, and then they got boring, and then CRISPR happened. So what got you into phages, and then what are you currently studying now with regards to phages? Okay, well, I should mention I'm also in the Department of Molecular genetics. Yeah, I kept, tell, I, I kept telling yeah, him that. Because yeah, it's a joint professor. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what got me into phages originally, yeah. well, I started working on them when I was a graduate student. And uh, I was actually interested in gene regulation in bacteria. And okay. uh, to be honest, the lab that I wanted to work in, I we had rotations in molecular genetics back then where yeah. I did my PhD. And, and it was uh, right you did your PhD at UFT. Yes. Yes. With, yeah. With Mark Gold, the the lab I thought I wanted to go to, I really didn't like. So uh, was after it like... that, I won't say what lab it was, but after that, I <laughs> oh, it's uh, still here. No, it's oh it's okay. A retired person. Oh, okay. But, uh, they could listen to this. After that, I was just trying to figure. I wanted to do prokaryotic work and was just trying to find somewhere Similar to go. To I, I went. Phages hadn't been on my mind, but. Once I started working on them, I really liked them. So, so serendipitous sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. And then, so how did that transition to what you study now? Well, I didn't. I did my PhD on phages, but then stopped working on them because it was in the early '90s, and phage research didn't seem like a viable area to be working on if one wanted to have a lab and get funded so and that was just because there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of interest in phages at that time and a lot of people who were working on phages were moving into other fields so i really didn't consider continuing on it so right i went to mit and worked on protein folding and i started my lab on protein folding right and we worked on sh3 domains as a model for protein folding in the late 90s i was able to get back into phage research um, because a student who was in Dr. Gold's lab at the time start was working on structural and folding type of work with phage proteins. Right. So I started collaborating. Yeah. And Dr. Gold retired and then I was able to use the progress use from that stone. student as a way to right. Get some grants and start working on yeah. phages again. Um, our, our original work was very much structure and base, trying to understand how so proteins assemble in phage particle. So no, like specific model, just pure protein. So it was really biochemical well, at first. It was biochemical. We, we were working on phage lambda originally, right? right. And then some okay. other uh, phages that are related to lambda. Um, the primary goal is to understand how the phage particles assemble, which is right. complicated. And we still work on that type of stuff in the lab, too. So it really was looking for phages just at phages, not as in their <clears throat> interaction with bacteria? No, originally <clears throat> not 
that wasn't something we were looking at at the time. Right. But then how did you guys, because I, I know anti-CRISPR was something that you guys, uh, your group, actually discovered. Right. So how did you guys even stumble upon it? Was it well, accidental? Well, a, a very uh, typical way science actually works, not yeah. <laughs> the way people might think. It wasn't, we didn't have some great idea that there must be anti-CRISPRs and then we wrote it grant on it and started working on it. that wasn't what happened we yeah. started working on pseudomonas aeruginosa yeah. because there was an uh, opportunity there was a call for grants to try and find novel alternatives to antibiotics uh, right okay. and using medically relevant bacteria and uh, lab e coli it wasn't that uh, important for health applications right. mm -hmm. so yeah. we wanted to pick an organism that was of, uh, of interest from the health standpoint yeah. pseudomonas aeruginosa is a big problem in hospitals and for right. cf clinics so we started working on that and we were actually inter interested in some phage tail like molecules that are made by pseudomonas that kill other pseudomonas strains and we were hoping to develop those into novel alternatives to antibiotics. Talosins. Talosins, yeah. So we still work on those too. But in the process of working on, we, we got a large number of strains of Pseudomonas and in the process of characterizing those strains and trying to induce these Talosins, we also realized there were a lot of phages in these strains. Yeah. And we started studying those phages too. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we also realized there was a CRISPR system in Pseudomonas. Yeah. And in fact, some work had been done on this system, and it, it was thought that it wasn't an active system for blocking phages. Really? But we eventually found some phages that were susceptible to the CRISPR system. Yeah. And in studying those, we quickly realized that a lot of the phages that people had been working on had anti-CRISPRs, and, and that's why they thought that the CRISPR system was inactive. Right. It was, it was actually just the phages they were using yeah. had anti-CRISPRs, and there was no way of knowing that at, at the time. So, And then once we discovered that, it was something we Started to were work compelled on. to work on because yeah. it was so interesting. So I think... A lot of people don't know what anti-CRISPR even is, because we describe what CRISPR is as yeah. a bacterial immune system, but how does anti-CRISPR work in terms of defending the phage against yeah. the bacteria? So anti-CRISPRs are uh, proteins that are <clears throat> produced by phages, and they can interact with the CRISPR-Cas systems and block their activity. So normally the CRISPR-Cas systems can bind to specific sequences in phage DNA and then right. mediate destruction of right. the genome. So the phages make these proteins, and in general they're very small proteins, usually around 100 amino acids. Yeah. And these proteins, uh, by a wide variety of mechanisms, are able to block the activity of the CRISPR-Cas systems. Right. So in general they bind to some component of the CRISPR-Cas system, and by doing that they block the activity. Right. And then Given that, how do bacteria counter that, like an anti-anti-CRISPR? Well, people always ask about that. We haven't found specific proteins that bind to anti-CRISPRs and yeah. block their activity. Mm -hmm. Now, we haven't 
look specifically for looked for those either. Are they of interest? Would yeah. they be worth? Do you looking? think it's oh. a possibility? Yeah, I, I think everything's possible <laughs> yeah. in bacteria and phages. So, and I think there may be people uh, looking for something. Mm-hmm. We have found proteins that could certainly act as anti-CRISPRs, and and this is another uh, paper we published last year. There. Are, Along with anti-CRISPR operons, there's almost always a repressor protein to control the expression of the anti-CRISPR. Because the anti-CRISPR has to be produced at very high levels when the phage first infects in order to accumulate and block the CRISPR system. In order for those promoters to exist in phages when they're so powerful, they need to have a protein that'll turn them down somewhat. Yeah. after the initial burst of transcription. Yeah. And we we discovered these and described these as um, anti-CRISPR-associated proteins and right. their repressors. And we found that if you express these repressors on their own, they'll actually block a phage that re- relies on anti-CRISPRs because the, this, the phage comes in, but its anti-CRISPR promoter is, is blocked. So it's easy to imagine that bacteria could have these kind of proteins in their genomes and block yes, so anti-CRISPR session. But we haven't discovered that phenomenon yet, but it's a little difficult because these kind of proteins are not as easy to recognize. So would you suspect if something like that does happen, it's the phage's own downfall as in it gives the bacteria yeah, its repressor? Exactly. Through its, yeah. so that's, it, could, it could happen, but it's hard to it's hard to detect that. right and the other phenomenon of course is that the CRISPR systems evolve to uh, evade the activity the anti-CRISPRs and we have exam- examples right. that we found of fairly minor changes in cas proteins that allow them to bypass the activity of anti-CRISPR right so we have different uh, we have CRISPR-Cas systems from different strains of the same species, and some some of them will be susceptible to a given anti-CRISPR, and others will not be. And it seems that there have been specific mutations that have been selected for right. because they provide immunity to a given anti-CRISPR. That's something yeah. we're really interested in studying more. Yeah, so... Now that so so the anti anti CRISPR stuff doesn't actually like have a like a, it hasn't been like discovered physically yet. It's more like a just an idea. So if this is possible, how evolved could these systems become? Like, are they just gonna keep evolving forever? It's like, well, are we gonna have like fifty anti like anti anti? <laughs> I guess anti, it's anti. Uh, it's all a question of likelihood <laughs> of what yeah what's gonna happen first so that's true yeah is it uh, more likely for another protein to come up de novo that'll inhibit an anti-crispr or is it just more likely that a crispr system is going to mutate right in a in, in some place that'll stop an anti-crispr from working maybe that scenario is yeah. more likely and all the other thing that seems to happen is just new crispr systems uh, emerge. Oh, right, because there, there are multiple types of them. There are now well over 30 different types of CRISPR systems. Yeah. And for the most part, you need different anti-CRISPRs to inhibit different types of CRISPR systems. Although we have 
discovered a number of anti-CRISPRs that have dual specificity right. for two quite different CRISPR systems. They can block yeah. both. But we're, we're just trying to understand how they do that. But they're just ultimately always going to be at war. It's never going to be like peace between them. Well, you know, it's you can call it a war, you can call it a collaboration. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Phages, particularly the temperate phages, the ones that can integrate their Genome. genomes into bacterial genomes, mm -hmm. yeah. almost invariably do something to enhance survival of the bacteria. Yeah. So a view of phages and bacteria being at war is not... So it's the best accurate. of both worlds, yeah. in a so, sense. Yeah. And in fact, we don't even know what CRISPR systems are generally anti-phage systems or not. Really? Because there's so many anti-CRISPRs out mm -hmm. there that even though you see CRISPR systems in many bacterial strains, they're often not active. Right. And that it may be that CRISPR systems are doing a lot of other things besides defending the cell defending against phages because it's a it's a mixed uh, blessing to have a crispr system because, really because phages can provide advantages for bacterial cells and uh -huh. so can other forms of uh, horizontally transferred yeah, dna right. so if a bacterial cell never allows any foreign dna and it could be at a disadvantage to a cell that can allow it allow it sometimes so it's so, a risk they have yeah. to hedge their bets and yeah. let the yeah. right so so interpretation of, of <clears throat> the the arms races yeah. is yeah. even more complicated than you might think yeah uh -huh. so i think in the spirit of gene editing because mm -hmm. our previous episode episode two was yeah. about gene editing and i know your lab focuses so somewhat on how anti-CRISPR can drive the evolution of CRISPR in terms of how it can be used in the lab. What advances have we seen in terms of CRISPR when it comes to anti-CRISPR? Well, there is a lot of interest in using anti-CRISPRs for various aspects of genome editing. Right. One uh, thing that people are working on is to try and improve the tissue specificity of genome editing. So if you want to, want to edit genomes in humans or counteract diseases in, in a live human patient, right. you have to get the CRISPR genes into the cells of interest. And this is actually an even bigger challenge right now than, than the editing yeah. itself. You need to get the genes in there. Um, the most commonly Use tool or viruses. Yeah, and which we saw with Jesse Gelsinger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's um, one called adeno-associated virus is an example that's the most commonly used virus for delivering mm -hmm. yeah. gene therapy, and it's used because it's been shown to be quite harmless, and that's a, a big plus. Yeah, but a minus is that the AAV strains aren't specific for one organ, so. If you want to treat muscular dystrophy like Ronnie Cohn wants to do, yeah. you can put your CRISPR construct into AAV and tar you won't target it to some genes in, in muscle that will, could counteract muscular dystrophy. But that virus is going to go to other tissues, like yeah. the liver is a particular target. So one thing actually that we've been doing in conjunction with one of his students is to try and 
include an anti-CRISPR gene in the virus also that will turn the the Cas9 off in any tissue's butt muscle so that the default state of the system is inhibited. But in muscle, you can design the gene so that it will have sites for um, small RNAs that are muscle-specific, and they bind the anti-CRISPR message and cause it to be degraded. So that's yeah. one idea. And and there are people, there are actually publications with the, these kinds of approaches. One of my collaborators and, in Massachusetts has published paper using this yeah. exact approach. In fact, it was his idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is just working off of yeah. that. So yeah. do you think this is going to be a viable option to treat something like muscular yeah. dystrophy in the I near think future? That, I think that these kinds of approaches are going to be standard because there are other ways to control the specificity of the CRISPR system. You can have tissue specific promoters, but when you're putting these into patients, you're going to need as many backup systems. Yeah. Because the issue right now is that you risk having a lot of off target effects. Exactly. So, so so expressing a a gene in the wrong tissue could be catastrophic for a patient. So these, so, having multiple mechanisms in the same vector to ensure that your activity is only going to be manifested in the target tissue will be very important to get uh, procedures approved and to actually have them be safe to give to thousands of people. So, so that's one application, and there are many other things along right. those lines that and are being. Do you think of. it'll remain a somatic type of change, or do you think in the future we can turn it into a germline editing application? There's no, uh, or is pra- it just there's no practical barrier to germline editing? A lot there's lots of controversy about yeah whether it should be even allowed at all. I, I think if you're going to eliminate Huntington's Korea from families, something like that, mm-hmm. I, I don't see what the problem with manipulating the germline. People are obviously afraid of pleiotropic you know, effects. Well, there's that. I, I get. I mean, I'm assuming the safety. Right. I mean, there's the safety aspect. Obviously, right. right now we don't know how to do this stuff well enough. You know yeah. what the what the happened in China was. Yeah, unacceptable right. on right. safety grounds yeah, because yeah. what he safety and it was it was point it was pointless and unsafe yeah. with today's technology, but we assume that at some point it'll be mastered so that you'll be able to make the changes you wanted and nothing right. else. I think when people are talking about germline editing, it isn't so much the safety as the morality of it, right? And um, I, I, I don't see that getting rid of a obvious disease gene yeah. from the population is a bad thing, especially from a given family. It's not right. uh, eliminating it from the world, but That's true. families but I mean, yeah, that have these terrible diseases, why, why have to keep treating people yeah. with it? Because so, I think yeah. one thing I was looking at when I was preparing for my, this, the second episode of this podcast was something about gene drive. Right. So, yes, so that's a whole other thing. Yeah, so, and, it, and it was being used to eradicate malaria, but mm-hmm. I couldn't find any follow-up. I don't know if my Googling skills just weren't good enough, but I haven't really seen them 
actually implement this? Have they implemented this? Definitely working on it. As far as I know, nothing has been released. So it's pretty recent stuff. So it has to be. And I think there you've got. I think that's almost more scary than a changing human germlines because human germline changes are are going to be controllable. I mean, you can can people you know who's mating with whom oh. and it's not going to spread across the world in, in, That's very true. in a yeah. year if you send something out in a mosquito you have no control could, over that yeah you just once you release something into the environment i think the i just passes on so quickly you know it, it sounds like a great idea but <laughs> it seems whenever we release things into the environment there's these unintended yeah. Consequences like cane toads in Australia, if you've ever heard of. No. They they decided to. This was back oh, wait, wait. In the 50s. Oh, right. Was this to. It was, it, it was for the. It was to get rid of. Yeah, it was to some, get some rid pest. of a pest yeah. that yeah, was yeah, killing cane. And, and they brought these huge toads, like <laughs> this, you know, six inches Very or eight inches yeah, <laughs> uh, wide. They decided to put them into the cane fields to eat some pest and they didn't eat those at all they <laughs> ate something else and now northern australia toad. is riddled with them they're everywhere and, and then just if nuisance. you like toads it's a good thing but yeah, these are really don't. big ugly toads <laughs> yeah so so that's so yeah releasing things into the environment scares me we should be than, careful so i'll think like, about that next time you know, people are worried about designer babies and people yeah. being able to manipulate the intelligence and <laughs> I mean, this is this seems to be people's biggest fears, but we're so far from all of those. Do, I mean, we have no idea. Yeah, because we were talking about like how do you how do you even with... control something like that? Like yeah, intelligence, how do you get like mind yeah. control? With yeah. there's no one gene for that. There's like yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that doesn't scare yeah. me too much because people aren't. You'd have to change so many yeah. things. So I think the moral is, and it we won't be, be CRISPR. You know. <laughs> Yeah. In 50 years, we'll probably be able to synthesize whole genomes and put them into cells and have completely synthetic people if you want to be scared. <laughs> so, yeah, clones. CRISPR is just a technology of today that will probably be supplanted by some other technology. But anti anti anti. But we'll, uh, yeah. yeah but, I think with... but the knowledge of, of what you'd want to change and deciding what you'd want to have in your kids would also be very difficult. Yeah. You may think you want certain characteristics until you actually have the kids. <laughs> they realize that obedience is the only thing you really wanted in your kid, but you never get. Would that win a Nobel Prize? Gene, for, the... Gene Obedi- for obedience. Yeah, because yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for something to win That's a Nobel it. Prize with. Yeah. I think I'll go with that. Yeah. My kids are very smart, but... It's the it's it's the teenage years. I'm assuming yeah. we were all disobedient at some yeah. point. So I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think with germline editing, a lot of people are just very misinformed. I guess they don't really know too much about well, gene editing. Because people think that tomorrow we'll be having all these yeah, yeah designer yeah. people, which is just. I think it's also the way happen. that a lot of articles are. Or the ones that like the public sees most of the time have these like really big clickbaity titles yeah. with like designer babies on the front. It's yeah. just like Dolly the Sheep when Dolly the Sheep came out. It mm-hmm. wasn't like this sort of editing, but it made great yeah, strides in like how people idea. saw it. Well, it shows it's just another technology that could be used for yeah. something, and someday it may be a problem. But 
Yeah. But today we'll just not too look into about it. it right now. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that exhausts all the questions that we did have. I don't know if you have any yeah, that's, other questions. That's about yeah, it. That was a very informative episode. <laughs> so thank that's you good. again for joining us. Good luck. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.